Jesus is the light of the world, and those who follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. I think it's fair to say that we live in a dark world, don't we? Uh, Whether it is the darkness that we see on a national level or the international scene, or if it's the darkness that we see here in our own community, uh, perhaps even the darkness in our own homes or the darkness in our own hearts, we know that it is true that we live in a very dark world indeed. But there is a light, a great light, that shines in the darkness of the world because Jesus is that light, that great light that shines. He is the light of the world. So if you were here for our Christmas Eve service, you may recall this illustration that I mentioned then. I'd like to talk about it here again for a moment. And that is the story of the brightest light in the world. The brightest light in the world is found in Las Vegas. There is a hotel there that is called the Luxor. And on top of the Luxor, there is a light. And there is a beam then that reaches up into the sky, into the dark sky above. And that beam is composed of 39 different xenon lights with 7,000 watt bulbs. Now, I like bright light, especially like outside, like a porch light or something. 7,000 watts, that's pretty impressive, though, don't you think, there with that? And when that light is switched on, the room which contains that light heats up to nearly 300 degrees Fahrenheit. And in fact, that light is so bright that it can be seen from space. And it is the brightest light on the planet. It is the brightest light on the planet so bright being seen from space. But I want to talk, though, about the true light, the true light of the world, as bright and powerful as that Luxor light may be. It has no power to shine into the moral and spiritual darkness of our world, does it? It has no power to bring light to dark hearts and hope for a lost world. But Jesus He is the greatest light, the truly brightest light that ever shone. And he has the power then to shine in the darkness of our hearts and to bring hope into our world. He is the true light of the world. Perhaps you today here this morning, perhaps you need some of that light to shine on the darkness of your world today. We are continuing our series here, Unique the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our approach here is a harmony of the Gospels. where We are taking the Gospel witness from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and putting them together into a harmony following the suggested order here in this book called One Perfect Life by John MacArthur. And so for today then, the theme is darkness and light. We'll be in John chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 30. And here is the key theme that I want us to take away from today, is that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light of the world. And those who follow him, who trust him, who follow him, will not walk in darkness, but will have 
the light of life. Amen. Before we look at that, a little context here first. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to attend the Feast of Tabernacles. And the feast commemorated Israel's years of living in the wilderness before entering the promised land. It was a feast that lasted for seven days, and all Jewish men were required to attend it. And the people would construct little dwelling structures called tabernacles or booths. They were like little tents that were made from tree branches. And they were like those that the Israelites lived in during the wilderness wandering. And there were two significant elements that were involved in the feast involving water and light. And Jesus would draw on both of those themes here drawing on the water ceremony to declare that he is the living water, and then the light ceremony to declare that he is the light of the world. Uh, Jesus was a controversial figure. There were some who were believing in him as Messiah. Others weren't so sure, and there were some, the religious leadership of the nation, that was violently opposed to him, and they even sought to kill him. We saw last week how Jesus drew on the imagery of water in the feast to say that he is the living water and that those who drink of this water that he offers, this water of salvation, they will never thirst again. You'll never need to look for salvation anywhere else. He is the living water who satisfies the soul. Today, then, we will see how he draws on the imagery of light in the feast to say that he is the light of the world. But before we get to that, a little note about the text here. We need a word of explanation about the text itself. Before we read of Jesus saying that he is the light of the world, we read of an incident in which a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery was brought before Jesus. But you will note, however, that there may be brackets around that section, which is found in John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, verse 11. You may see an explanatory note there that says that the earliest manuscripts that we have found of John's gospel do not contain this story. Now, it's true that we do not have the original manuscript that John wrote. And for that matter, we do not have the original manuscripts of any of the New Testament documents. But we do, in fact, though, have thousands of copies of New Testament manuscripts. Now, back in those days, they did not have copy machines, Xerox. They did not have computers with documents that they could store documents into the cloud. By the way, I've come to see, I love that. Does anybody here love how you can store stuff in the cloud? Now, I know there's some of us, we got to watch out, you know, in this in this world we live in and the things that people get can get access to. But isn't that something, how we can take a document, upload it into the cloud, and then others can see that who have access, proper access, authorization, and see that there. Well, of course, they did not have any of that back in the day. And so if you wanted a copy of a document, what must you do? Pay somebody. Pay somebody. Well, that, but also what? You had to write it out. It all had to be handwritten, of course. And over time, as more and more copies of the New Testament scriptures were handwritten, we begin to see some small variations in the text here and there. 
But now it's important, it's critically important for us, though, to understand and to note that of these variations, the overwhelming majority of them are things like a, a spelling mistake or a word that's accidentally repeated, something like that, that kind of thing. That is the overwhelming uh, explanation for the number of variations. It's things like that. Things with human beings making copies, you would see things like that. But also what's critically important is that in no instance is any element of doctrine affected by this as well. So with that said then, what we have here then today is a passage that most Bible scholars say was probably not in John's original gospel. It was likely a story then from oral tradition about Jesus that was later inserted into the text of the gospel itself. Now, remember that John himself said that his gospel does not tell us everything that Jesus said and did. And for that matter, we could put all of the gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These don't tell us everything that Jesus said and did, do they? In fact, John supposed he said what? He said that of all the things that Jesus said and did, the world could not contain all of the books that could be written about Jesus. And so while this story of the woman caught in adultery was probably not in John's original gospel, it is also, though, quite possibly a true story. It is a true story from Jesus's ministry because many Bible scholars believe that it bears the mark of an authentic historical record. So we will comment on it then with that understanding then. Now, previous to this point, Jesus has declared that he is the living water and that those who come to him will never thirst. Meanwhile, in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the chief priests had sent officers to arrest Jesus, but they came back empty-handed. They were going to arrest him, but they weren't able to. They come back. Why weren't they able to arrest him at that time? John tells us what? Because it was not his time, right? God, Jesus was in sovereign control of all of the events of his life and his earthly ministry, including the very day, the very hour, the very minute in which he would die on the cross. And so these officers were sent to arrest him, but they were not able to do so because it was not yet his time. So these officers had reported back to the Sanhedrin. They said, we've never heard anyone speak like him. And so they were reviled, saying, what, have you been deceived by him as well? But Nicodemus, though, he was a Pharisee. He cautioned them against a hasty judgment, and he insisted that Jesus must be given a proper hearing. And so with that, then, we pick up there. Let's start at John chapter 7, verse 53, where we're told then, and, and everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. 
Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We're told here that the scribes and the Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. She'd been caught in the very act. And they brought her to Jesus in order to trap him and to have something with which to accuse him. They were setting him up for what we might say in our day, a gotcha moment. You know those gotcha moments where sometimes where someone's being interviewed and a question is being asked and it's being phrased in such a way to deliberately try to catch them. I gotcha on this, right? So now they were trying to get Jesus into yet another gotcha moment. We see this in numerous instances throughout the gospel stories here where they would set him up, trying to trap him in some way, a, a no-win situation, if you will, for him. So we see then very dark hearts on display in this account. There is the moral darkness in the heart of the woman who was caught in adultery, yes, But also, though, we see the dark hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees who were using this situation to try to engineer trouble for Jesus. The law of Moses said that persons who were caught in adultery were to be stoned. Now, if Jesus said to stone her then, they could accuse him to the Romans who alone held the right to carry out capital punishment. But if he said not to stone her, they could accuse him of violating the law of Moses. So here they thought, ah, we've got him. Either way. If he says don't stone him, don't stone her, then, well, you're violating the law of Moses, Jesus. But if he does, ah, now we can go to the Romans. We got you. Do you think they were very proud of themselves, thinking, we've got a great situation. Let's see, let's see what he does now, right? But first, you know, it's interesting to note something here, though. Now, the act of adultery requires how many persons to carry out? Two, right? <laughs> a man and a woman. We have the woman. Where is the man? Is it possible that this whole thing had been set up by the scribes and the Pharisees 
and the man was allowed to get away? Possibly. Hmm. Say, very dark hearts indeed. So now, here is this woman standing before him. What will Jesus say? But he doesn't speak immediately. Instead, he stoops down and begins to write on the ground. But there are the Pharisees. They keep pressing him. What do you say? What do you say? Jesus, what should we do with her? We got you now. All right? But there he is just writing on the ground. Finally then, he stands up. Now, first of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and in, verse, and in chapter 17, it states that the witnesses of a capital crime are to start the execution. Interestingly, though, only those who were not guilty of the same sin could participate. So Jesus stands up. Come on, Jesus, what do you say? What should we do with her? So Jesus stops writing. He stands up and he says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Then he bent back down and continued writing on the ground. And we're told that the accusers were convicted by their consciences. And they began to leave one by one, interestingly, starting with the oldest first until all were gone. And now it was just Jesus and the woman. And Jesus asked her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That is, leave, leave this life of sin. People often ask, What was Jesus writing on the ground? Well, I want to tell you, I have done extensive research into this. I have looked into this. I have studied this. And I'm here to tell you that I can finally report the answer to that question. What was Jesus writing on the ground? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> the answer is, is, well, we simply, we don't know, do we? We don't know what he was writing exactly. Some have suggested perhaps he was writing out the Ten Commandments. Some have suggested perhaps he was writing out the specific sins of some of those accusers. Some have even suggested perhaps he was writing the names of women with whom some of them had committed that very same sin. Perhaps. We don't know. But whatever it was, what we can say with certainty is that whatever it was, and in that moment, their consciences were convicted. And they left one by one. Again, I suspect perhaps he was writing out the law, the, the Ten Commandments. And I think the Spirit was moving in the hearts and the minds of those accusers there. They were seeing that and being reminded like, oh, 
He who is without sin be the first to cast. Now, how many of us here in this room, if we were to do through and read through an honest reading of the new of, of the Ten Commandments, could say, "I'm without sin." Not a single one of us could we. We are all guilty, aren't we? So whatever it was, he was writing, their consciences were convicted. And they came to see their own sin. And they left one by one. So once again, as he has done before, Jesus steps right out of that trap which had been set for him. And once again here, he upholds the law while also demonstrating mercy and grace. I want us to think about that for a moment. Upholding the law while extending mercy and grace. And isn't that exactly what he did by going to the cross and dying for our sins? He upheld the justice of the law of God. And yet through that, then, it was the very instrument through which he extended mercy and grace to undeserving sinners. Jesus upheld the law of God. He went to the cross. He was punished on the cross for our sins. The righteousness of God was met in the cross of Jesus Christ. The punishment was satisfied. And yet through that then, he then extends forgiveness and mercy, grace, blessing to people who receive that by faith. Upheld the law while also extending grace. And I think that is why Jesus could say to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That is, leave your life of sin. Repent. So in Jesus, our sins are justly punished. We're no longer condemned. But then he tells us then to go and live a life of repentance from sin. Jesus is the living water, but he is also the light of the world. I said, as a part of the feast, light figured prominently in that when the Jews would light four large lamps in the temple court. And part of the reason for this is, is this symbolized how God led them through the darkness of the wilderness with a pillar of fire, right? Remember, how did he lead them by day? By a cloud, and how at night? By pillar of fire. And so these large lamps in the temple court represented that or symbolized that. So Jesus sees that, and he seizes on that and says to them then, starting in verse 12, John 8, verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And the Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. But Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, 
but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, according to appearances, but I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And they said to him, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him. Why? For his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Jesus is the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, Jesus as the creator. He is the creator of physical light, certainly, but that's not the light he's referring to here. He's speaking of what? Of moral and spiritual light that he is the moral and the spiritual light in the world that shines in the moral and spiritual darkness of the world. Now think about that statement for just a moment here. I am the light of the world. I'm the moral and spiritual light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have life, eternal life, will have the light of life. Now that is a pretty bold statement for someone to make, don't you think? A pretty bold statement for a merely human teacher to make, don't you think? 
What would you think of that if I stood up here one Sunday and said, I am the light of the world. Time to get a new preacher, preacher, right? And rightly you should. Now, if I believe that Jesus was merely human, I'd be pretty offended by what he said there, wouldn't you? Of course. Because anyone, a mere human being making a statement like that, well, that's what? That's, That's blasphemy, isn't it? But Jesus isn't merely human, is he? He is God. He's God in the flesh. And when you're God in the flesh, you can say things like that. Like, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, eternal life. So Jesus is eternal life. To follow him is to have eternal life. But Jesus is also the light that shines in the darkness. He is moral and spiritual truth. You want to know what's good, what's right, what's true? We have a lot of very confused people in our world today, don't we? We have confused people in the church about what's right and what's true and what's good. But we don't have to wonder, we don't have to guess because it's been revealed to us in the word of God. Jesus is the light. He is the truth. And so he gives us guidance through his word by the power of the Spirit. He gives us guidance in the darkness of this world to show us what's right, what's good, what is true. As I said, though, if you say, I'm the light of the world, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have light of life. That's a pretty bold statement there, Jesus. Uh, do you have any witnesses? Do you have anybody who can back this up? And Jesus says, well, yes, I, I do have witnesses. In fact, I have two witnesses. You see, the law of Moses required that if someone were to make a statement, you would need witnesses to back that up. And you needed two witnesses to establish or confirm that. Well, where are your witnesses? Oh, Jesus, you're the light of the world, huh? Well, where are your witnesses? You just speak of your, from yourself there. Why should we believe that? And Jesus says, well, I do have two witnesses. And who are those two witnesses? God the Father and God the Son himself. And so, well, wait a minute. You're, you're speaking of anybody can say anything. Why should I believe that? And Jesus says, well, if you're him, if you're a God, then what I say is true. Because God is truth and he does not lie, right? So his witness is true. Why? Because he came from heaven and he's returning to heaven. He has heavenly origins. He's no mere human. And who else testifies of him? God, God the Father testifies of him. Those are his witnesses. Now, certainly they were already angry with him to begin with, accusing him falsely of blasphemy. But then Jesus says something else. Jesus didn't shy away from speaking truth, even though it hurts sometimes, right? (laughs) And so what else does he say that's so offensive then to them? So he says, you know, even if I speak of myself, 
my witness is true. Why? Because I'm, I'm from heaven. I'm from, I'm God. But then he says this, my father speaks of me. God, the father speaks of me. And if you knew the father, that is, if you truly knew God, then you would recognize me then too for who I am. So why are you stumbling over this? Because you don't know God. Because if you truly knew God, the Father, then you would recognize me for who I am too. You think that stung? Telling them they don't know God? Absolutely it did. But it's true though, isn't it? And then he says, I'm going away. And where I am going, you cannot follow and they rightly deduce that he's, he's talking about dying here. And they wonder, what is he talking about, killing himself? Is he going to commit suicide? Because, no, they didn't realize what he was talking about. In the sacrificial death, he was about to die. He says, where I'm going, you can't follow me. And then he says words that every time I read these words here, and just again here, it just it gives me the chills. It ought to you to anyone who's reading, and he says them. He says to them, "You will die in your sins." Shouldn't that chill us to the bone? Why? Because they rejected him. Because their hearts were cold and dark and hard, and rejected him. They were slaves to sin, and Jesus said. You will die in your sins. But then he goes on to say, when you lift me up, says what? When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself, as my Father taught me. What was Jesus talking about when he said, when you lift up the Son of Man, what was he referring to? The crucifixion, the cross. It was to be literally lifted up onto the cross, right? You know, we, we sometimes will sing, and no offense to worship leaders everywhere, but we sometimes sing, and we'll say, what? Lift him up, lift Jesus up, lift him up. And what do we mean by that? We mean sing praises of adoration, but biblically, when it speaks of lifting Jesus up, what does it mean? It's crucify him, right? So he said, when you lift me up, not when you sing words of praises, but what? When you put me up on the cross, then you will know. And the truth is, too, that when Jesus was crucified, he died, he was buried, and then what? He resurrected, he was resurrected. In the very early days of the church, people then, thousands of people were coming to believe in him, including many who? Many of the priests. And even the Pharisees, those who had rejected him. Now, the, the leadership of the nation, no, they still rejected him. But even many, though, among those of the class of the priests and the Pharisees, even they began to believe in him. In fact, there was one very well-known Pharisee who came to believe in Jesus after the resurrection. Who was that? Well, Nicodemus was one of them, right? But... Paul, the Apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee. Right? 
Now, we don't read of him until the book of Acts, when in the early days of the church, he was a persecutor of the church, right? And he was going to Damascus to persecute the believers there. And then he was confronted by Jesus, converted on the spot, called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things to you. He is the light of the world, and he has those two witnesses, God the Father and himself, who is from heaven and returning to heaven. So I say, so what? What do you want me to do with this? Well, I want to remind us that Jesus is the light of the world. And those who follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So I want to ask two questions of this. One is, is, have you believed in the light? Jesus says when we believe in him, that we will not walk in darkness, but rather we will have life, the light of life, eternal life. That eternal life is a gift from God. It's received then by believing in the light of the world. He is the light of the world. Those who receive him will not walk in darkness, but will have life, the light of life. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Put your trust, your faith in him. Repented from sin. Turn to faith in Christ. Receive the gift of life in his name. But there's another aspect of Jesus is the light of the world, is are you walking in the light? You know, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to what? To imitate him, to live as he lived. Now, not a one of us here, starting with me, perfectly obeys the law of God and everything that Jesus said and did. But that's the life that we're called to, though, right? Is a life of faith and a life of obedience to God's word. Conformity to that which is good and true and right. So are you walking in that? If you have received the light of life, are you now walking in that light? And how do we walk in that light? By what? We're in God's word. We're reading it. We're studying it. We're applying it to our lives. We're not living a perfect life, but we are living a life that is being perfected by the power of the Spirit at work in us. You know, Jesus can offer, Jesus can both uphold the righteous requirement of the law and extend mercy and grace through the wonder and the miracle of the cross. And just as Jesus said to that woman, he said, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? If your faith is in Jesus, no one condemns you. All of us here are guilty. All of us have sinned. But if our faith is in Jesus, he does not condemn us. He was condemned for us. And so he does not condemn you. But as he told her, he said what? Go and sin no more. He says to us, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Leave a life 
of sin. Repent of that and follow him. Jesus is the light of the world that shines in the darkness. Amen. Father, we do thank you that we have the light of the world, that we do not walk in darkness. We thank you that through our faith in him, we have the light of life, that we have forgiveness of our sins, the gift of eternal life. I pray, Father, then, that if there is anyone here who has not received that gift by faith, that your spirit would prompt them, prompt their heart to turn now, to turn away from sin, to embrace that offer of light and life in his name. I pray, Father, then for those of us who know Jesus, that we would follow him faithfully. Thank you, Lord, that your word promises us that for we who believe in you, that even though we still sin, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for the continuing cleansing, Lord, offered to us through the death of Jesus for us, made clean by the blood of his cross. So, Lord, may we now go from here, go and sin no more, but as leave that life of sin and follow you faithfully, thankful that we are not condemned, but we have the light of life. In these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.